for my bar mitzvah, my cousin, who was always a little bit, eh, he got me a pair of Larry Bird game-worn sneakers that were signed by him. They were like the old black Converse. Right. And I was white. super psyched until I realized they were a size 10. And I was like, Larry Bird's, Larry Bird's a big dude. I don't think he wore a size 10. Yeah. It's like, he's like, these are game-worn. I'm like, dude, don't bullshit a bullshitter. Yeah. <laughs> the signature looked real, but I don't even buy that. Big Bird fan, but I, I really, the guy was six feet. Size tall. 10, I, got, I don't think so. I wear a size, I'm a size 12 yeah. and a half. Do I go, am I putting these on? Where am I? Yes. Where are my muffs? These would be good for outside today. <laughs> yeah. I might have you slide down just a little bit so you're closer to the mic. Okay. Rocking the mic. So are you following uh, are you following the Nelson Peltz versus Disney stuff at all? Not really. Mm. So um Disney put out an, an a, a, a formal filing. Basically saying this guy Nelson Peltz has met with us 30 times. He never says anything. I think, like, like he just wants a board seat. He's an ideas guy. No, but he isn't. <laughs> that's the thing. His idea is give me a board seat. Like, that's his... In other words, he's not putting forth any strategy or any competing idea for, for Disney. It's just like, give me my board seat already. And uh, I don't know. So they, so they formally rebuffed him. So he went on TV today. He went on uh, okay. CNBC. And uh, he's, not, he's not going away. So... They're going to have the uh, proxy uh, vote this yeah. spring. It's going to be a lot of fun. The stock is looking less terrible. Stop going down. <laughs> For now. He has the former CFO from Disney as one. He wants two board seats. I think one for him and one for this guy who is the CFO. And that's like their, their demand. And he doesn't own enough stock himself. He has the guy that sold Marvel to Disney, uh, Ike Perlmutter. He has that guy's shares, and that guy has a lot of stock. So it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a fun one. You, ever, you have any experience with these guys? You ever deal with them back in your day? We do a lot of work now for um, corporates and law firms and boards when there's an activist situation. Um, mostly, it's about some capital use. Like, should they do an accelerated share purchase? Should they do a spin co? Uh, often the activist wants no spending. So if you're a healthcare company, you either have to do R&D for a new product or SG to market what you have. If you do nothing, sure, you can print two good quarters on margins, but then the business is probably starved going forward. So often what we'll do is just come in and say, okay, here's a group of stocks historically that looked like this one. How did they toggle their R&D spend or their, or their marketing spend and which ones had a better you know, EV to sales or whatever? So we just kind of give them the empirical data to give them advice about what to do. They want to know which stock went up, which which one had the stock was price the that went path? up the most? Yeah, which was like the better spending path to generate value. I was reading your spinoff work. That was good stuff. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You're the one. I I'm saw, the one. Saw one guy clicked on it. <laughs> Who brings you in, the company or the investment bank that wants them to do something because they'll get paid for doing it? Yes. Both. Okay. Yeah, law firms, boards, friends on boards, CFOs, IR. And then we can be proactive. Like if we know there's an activist that's gone in, we can go to the corporate if they want help. Or even we, we work with some of the activists too. For us, like, I, I don't want to say I'm, I don't care, but I'm, it's clinical. Like, here's the data. Here's what it shows. Is there a distribution of outcomes? Like a court, you're, like a court, you're like a court witness. So you're not giving necessarily opinions. You're giving data? I give my judgment uh. afterward, but oh, you're, it's, oh, wait, it's supported saying, by the data, right? You're not – a court witness is hired by one side or the other, but so are you. Yeah, I'm not – yeah, but I'll – I'm not, like, a, involved in the same thing on both sides or anything. It's just sort of like, okay, the there's an activist – there's a, 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 a Remain Co and a Spin Co. The Remain Co's got the activist and, and, and 
that activist wants no spending. So the board of the Remain Co. will hire us to sort of give them the evidence of what to do. I don't know why. I just thought, you know, the scene in my cousin Vinny, ladies and gentlemen of the ju- 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 jury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So they will bring they'll bring you in and say, okay, forget yeah. about forget about the opinion on the right strategy. Give us the numbers. If you're, if you're what, paying, what would be the right thing to do by the numbers? If you're paying $15 million to one of the big bank investment banks for a divestiture fee and $4 million in legal fees to one of the five firms that God. dominate that, for me to charge a fraction of those numbers and empirically give you the data that supports doing something, I'm a really small percentage of the bill of material. So the advisory business for us is great. You know, If your combined legal plus IB is $18 million and I charge – 100000 for the expert analysis is great business for me, but it's such a small percentage of the bill of materials for the deal, and it helps them get confidence that I'm, I'm not maybe biased data from the investment bank giving advice, or I have an agenda to get the transaction Adam, done. When you explain that date, when you explain that business, is this for salad or what's the deal with this? Are we having some it gives, snacks or what's it, it it's gives, depth? What it is gives this? the table dimension and depth. You can't have a YouTube video where a third of the screen is a brown table. Okay. Okay. So okay, Michelangelo. I, th- I thought it was yeah related to how fat I was looking at from when you yeah. And, yeah. Oh, also we're gonna fill it with wings. In GLP in GLP one, this <laughs> okay. you won't need this uh, after I'm, uh, we're all at Ozempic. So yeah. it gives the table depth, and we're gonna fill it with lemon pepper wings. Yeah, from, right. Uh, like wing that. Stop. Yeah. So when you Fries. told me that business that you were in, what right. did I say? I said stop doing everything else. <laughs> be the be the be the quant. For be the advisory quant, right? Because I don't think that exists. How many guys like you are running around who can do those research reports with the credibility you have to give corporate boards direction? Not a lot. Yeah, I think the two things that we're doing that we're trying to amplify my background are one, um, risk work. So we've signed dozens and dozens of non disclosure agreements with buy side firms, long only hedge funds, quants, whatever, who send us their portfolio to do custom risk work. So a lot of Institutional investors will have services that do the risk, VARA, Axioma, mortgage selling fund services, if they print broker, whatever. And so they pay us to kind of come in and say, okay, What's what? What do you see as the real risks? You know, we could be more nimble because they're taking existing portfolio and they're saying, Parker, where are my risks? Yeah, what do you think the risks are? Okay, Uh, also great business. Yeah, so that's a great business because. You know, I you know if you're the CIO of the fund, like maybe if I work for you, I'm I'm a little bit nervous to kind of like really slap you with what I think the risks are, but I they're they're kind of paying me to your be, objective. Yeah, I I'm, I want you to do well. Oh, that's interesting. They want you to find yeah. risks. Yeah. The analyst that works there doesn't want to rock the boat, uh, but you're like, hey, you paid the firm, me, so but, here's what I think. Yeah, it depends on the culture of the firm, but I'd say yeah. in general. Um, you know, I, 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 my only goal is to help. And so I can say, look, this is what I see. I can think if rates rise, you're going to get killed or all else equal. This is the thing that hurts you or these things. Cause sometimes it happens culturally, Josh, like you, let's say you decide you run a big fund and you're like, you know what? I want to lighten our tech exposure. I'm a little worried about it. Right. I say that you, every day. You go to the, you go to the tech PM and you say, give me your least three favorite names because you don't want to, you know, sort of disenfranchise the, the person who's been working hard picking the stocks. The problem is those three least favorite names might not be the three. Uh, at least risky, risk right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it helps to be like, okay, great. Culturally, you told them to sell that. But if this happens, you know, F-Wonk is going to get killed or whatever name is, is in the fund that's got the risk. So we do it more like on a risk, you know, what, what, how do you sort of maybe best implement what your concerns right, are? Right, because sometimes maybe it's yeah. position size. Sometimes it's leverage. Some, sometimes it's not the name itself. Yeah. But the way that you're trading it. Or or replicability, not to get too nerdy this this early, but like maybe there's a stock that has 70 other names that trade just like it. And so 
I don't need to own a huge position in that because I can spread the risk across a lot of other names. Right. Or maybe it's like there's nothing like it, and then I better be right, or there's outsized risk per per unit of capital. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna get into that today, and uh, John John looks like he's ready to go. We're ready to go. All right, oh, that was all warm up. I like it. Okay, I didn't even know. Just getting the blood flowing. Uh, it's always I always have an on button. There's no. One twenty six. What's up? Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Red Holtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Red Holtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is sponsored by Jensen Investment Management. Josh, I like my investments like I like my cars. Go on. Quality. Oh, I would agree with that. Jensen has been a quality-focused equity shop in Oregon for the last 35 years. I do love Oregon. Well, we all do. But what's important about Jensen is this. They're not looking for short-term return chasers. They are looking for investors. Count me out. Okay. They are looking for <laughs> investors who are seeking long-term risk-adjusted returns. There are periods of time where quality is in favor and periods of time where it's out of favor. They don't chase low-quality stocks in 2021. They stick to what they do. They're disciplined. I'm a quality guy. Okay. Jensen runs three strategies. U.S. large-cap quality, U.S. mid-cap quality value, and global large-cap quality. Quality is quality. And if you know, you know. And if you want to learn more, you go to Jensen, with a J, investment.com. That's jenseninvestment.com. So excited to be here today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Compound and Friends, the absolute best investing podcast in America, according to my sources. My source is Nicole. You agree with that? Yes? Oh, yeah, dude. All right. Uh, we're going to have an amazing show. To my right, I guess you're to my right if I'm leaning this way, Adam Parker is the founder and CEO of Trivariate Research, a U.S equity-focused boutique research platform. Adam was the chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley from 2010 to 2017. Well done. And is a frequent contributor to CNBC. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks. What was the order of Morgan Stanley chief strategist? Who was before you and who was after you? Um, Mike Wilson. The current strategist is the one came who in right came, after came you. Came in right after me. Tom uh, Tom Lee was J.P. Morgan. Right. Who was before you at Morgan Stanley? Briefly, uh, the, the well-known person was Henry McVeigh. Okay. Henry works at KKR and okay. is a, should be on your show if you can get him. Okay. Yeah. Call call him for us uh, <laughs> sure. on your way out of here. I will. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. with Adam and I, our son Michael Batnick. Oh come on, get lost. I mean a little bit, a little bit sun vibes. All right. Listen, uh, this is gonna be a great show, Adam. I've been dying to ask you. Uh, really since before the year began. We haven't heard from you in a while. Right. I, I, I catch your appearances on, on TV. They don't give you enough time. They don't give anyone really enough time. That's TV. Right. What is going to happen this year? Last year, last year, I think it's fair to say a majority of people who follow the economy and the stock market for a living were just completely shocked. Like uh, we, we could all kind of agree. All right. So we get over the shock. And now we're in a situation where inflation is falling. 
Earnings are growing. Can that continue? Did we just like get out of, uh, get out of jail free card, assuming the Fed doesn't make another mistake? I think the skew is to the positive for this year. So it's a yes. Um, I do. Okay. Um, you know, the th- I could tell you because we just did our outlook a couple weeks ago. I don't understand why the big bulge bracket firms do theirs in November and then they already are wrong before January 1st. It, I don't want to – have to change my view over the year before the year starts. So yeah, yeah. we do it early in the year. We see what the consensus is out there. And then you can sort of see, I, I hate romanticizing. I'm contrarian. Like you got to actually know what the consensus is and then figure out if you're different or not. And some things you are, some you aren't. Um, I think the positives would be one. I think the average company can probably have gross margin expansion. Okay. okay. And if you believe that you should probably on average be bullish. I can walk through, you know, a is semester simply, on why, but we, but is that simply their input prices are coming down and they're not lowering their prices. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the four or five reasons. I mean, look, costs are wages, they're materials, and they're depreciation, and none of those things are getting worse. And so the answer, the pricing and mix would be the other the other side of it. And and I think, um, you know, those the, the costs are, are going to turn from headwinds into left headwinds or tailwinds for the average company. Chipotle is a great example. So we learned that food at home, grocery store stuff, it's coming down. Right. I went to Chipotle before. Those prices aren't coming down. At all. A lot of companies um, are going to be able to maintain the prices. And so that should be good. And you've already seen over the last six months, sort of the median stocks, gross margins kind of plateau. And the analysts are forecasting a decent number of them will have gross margin expansion. I think about 70% are supposed to have gross margin expansion. Now, analysts aren't great at calibrating. We all know that. But they're pretty good at knowing whether margins are up or down. I think they're right like three quarters of the time. So I think, you know, we'll see with logistics costs and, and you know, some well, geopolitical so, stuff, right, but so, I think costs can come down. So let that, me ask you. So that's one of the three points on why I think, you know, the market c- could go up is that gross margins could go up for the average company. Let me ask you how good you feel about costs coming down, though, because before we leave that to the next two. Yeah. Because if I give you that the labor market uh, is loosening somewhat, maybe not every industry, but just like generally. All right, I'll give yeah. you that. Uh, energy costs have been okay. I'll give you that food costs, whatever, you know, whatever your inputs are, insurance, reinsurance. I mean, the rate, the rates at which business insurance, property and casualty, every type of insurance you could think of. Health, healthcare costs. Are it's not, like yeah. worse than 2021. Yeah. Uh, healthcare costs. I, I was yeah. also going to throw out. Yeah. So there, there are still costs that are rising way too quickly. And these are important costs for businesses. I think that's true. I mean, but it's what, it depends on the business. And that's why I was kind of parse my words with the average or median company can have gross margin expansion. I don't, okay. I don't think it's all of them. I just think it depends on your, on your costs and your margins. But for most businesses, take like a industrial or a machinery or semiconductor, whatever, their cogs are depreciation, materials, and labor. And, and I think, like you said, Bloomberg Commodity Index, how do you think about materials? Generally, it should be better. Currency could help if they're international. Labor, wages are inflating less. What about borrowing? Growing. The borrowing issue affects, you know, um, lower quality balance sheets, small caps on a relative basis. And that's why they ripped when financial conditions eased in November, yeah. December. They probably won't incrementally ease. And so it's less maybe – I think what you got there was multiple expansion. Now you need to see the earnings side t- come through to merit. You don't have to worry about borrowing costs for the S&P 100. It's not, it's, it's not uh, a huge I, This will be factor. a dismissive statement that I'm sure there'll be some comment on. But like – We'll S&P, save the video. S&P 500 companies don't really go bankrupt, okay? Yeah. I mean, obviously, 
that's a, you know, one or two can happen in a crisis. You had three banks last year, but like in general, they don't. So you're really talking more about stocks, a thousand, fifteen hundred, where, you know, they're, they're, weighted, they're, they're wax higher and it hurts them when, when, when rates rise, but it, it, it definitely doesn't affect United Health or, let me clean that up for you. They do go bankrupt, but long after they've ceased being large caps. Yeah, they they've exited. You know, <laughs> Sears like Sears was not in the S and P five hundred for a long time, right? Before it became what it became. Totally, and 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 by the way, that's one of the reasons it's kind of hard to beat the S and P is they kick out inferior yeah. companies and add good ones, and so it's, it's a managed, it's a managed it's index. Yeah. So Adam, I want to go. So you're, you're giving me the right pushback on the gross margin point. Like, sure, if your cost of capital goes up and you have a lot of interest expenses. What are the bad. What are the other two? All right, so 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 we got that. What are the other two so, but, reasons? But, yeah. So one is margins. Two is, um, and this is always hard to see, but like longer term investors who do like cross asset are always bearish on equities because if earnings, I think earnings could grow five, six, seven, eight years in a row. I think there's a chance that you'll be sitting here in the middle of the year thinking they're probably higher in 25. And then in 25, you're like, yeah, they're probably higher in 26. And so just like in 2011, when they grew to 2019, like if, if there's no reason why earnings are going to collapse for the next five, six years, equities are of course going to be better than owning bonds over that period, right? So that's, you know, you, if you start getting confidence that earnings have kind of troughed and could grow in a lot of areas, that, that could also be bullish. Um, it's hard to forecast out in the future, but it, I don't see any reason. I don't see, look, this cycle is different than when, you know, the last or third reason is generally you're going to get um, front-end accommodation, whether it's as much as in the price or not. The Fed, the, the, the BOE and, and the ECB are all saying they're probably going to cut. So I, I think we've, if we, you and I have learned one thing in the last 50 years of collective analyzing things, fighting the Fed is not a particularly good idea. So like this bull case very simple. It was is, last year. Huh? Fighting the Fed was a good strategy last year. It was? Yeah. They were trying yeah. to slow the economy or slow the market. Oh. It didn't work. Oh, I meant, hiking I, meant, yeah. I meant fighting the uh, accommodation, not the, yeah. Not yeah, the yeah, tightening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, but so I think the simple case would just be margins are going to go up for a lot of companies. Earnings will probably grow for a while, and the Fed's probably likely to be accommodative, and that cocktail could be good. I think the harsh pushback would be, one, China looks directionally bad and getting worse. And so economically sensitive business there could, could be bad. Two, valuation. Um, well, you got you got yeah, you got quantitative tightening on the balance sheet, not on the front end, and maybe that is a liquidity problem. Three, I think the U.S. consumer, you know, is slowing. How about four? Uh, that's consensus. The market was up twenty six percent last year because the market is expecting these rate cuts in the soft landing. And if you don't get one or two of those things, or or less good than expected, then maybe we give some back. I I hear you. I don't think you can show that empirically as well. There's plenty of years where the market goes up a lot after it went up a lot. Totally. All right. So, so I think that one is harder. It resonates with me. Oh, I think with everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 that's this is like a I don't mean this to sound well, that's why maybe the first three days of the year it was bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everyone knows it ripped for no reason in November. But like I'm not if I look out six or twelve months, I have less data to support that. I, I get it, it resonates, but I'm not sure. Uh, I would go back and look at 95 years of S&P returns and say every time it was up above 10, I sell it the next year. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's, that's, that's not my argument. That's, no, no, that's no. That's what people would say. No, okay. I, I agree. I agree. So Adam, and you, it could be right, by the way. It's like you never – We'll find right, right, right. We, we pulled uh, a bunch of your charts from that awesome uh, uh -oh. paper that you put up. No, let's just, uh -oh. let's just use this as a jumping off point. Okay. So you wrote, a bottoming economic activity gauge and loosening financial conditions are typically positive – for risk taking. So you've got two charts. Yeah. This is Trivarius proprietary economic activity gauge. Yes. And you show when it's increasing, when it's decreasing, and when it's sort of without trend. And this is sort of with it's sort of a no man's land, but it troughed, right? Yeah. What's in here? So each what we do is we download about 
170 variables from Bloomberg, and we create a, a bunch of gauges. These are uh, two that I thought looked directionally positive. Economic activity is stuff like city surprise, leading economic indicator, small business optimism. Um, and that was going down all of last year while the market was rookie. Correct. Correct. And the reason I do this is twofold. One, to try to have sort of an a unbiased gauge of what's happening. Um, I've learned when you're on the buy side, what you realize is you don't know when the trough is at the trough. It's very easy to go back and tell you what worked from the trough to the peak 20 years ago. I can analyze that. But when I'm in you the trough, I don't know what it is. Yeah. And you, you, if you're being honest, and what I've learned is it takes about six weeks. I'm about six weeks. I'll tell you six weeks after the trough when the trough was and six weeks after the peak when the peak was. So all, if you're gonna all you can do. So if you're going to implement a strategy, you have to be honest when you run money like you guys and say, all right, I'm going to be late implementing it and I'm going to ride it over the edge and it net, net still has to add value. Otherwise, it's stupid and I shouldn't do it. It's just creates churn or whatever. So one reason is honestly where I am. And the two is, I think you guys know this, but we build like quant models to predict stock return. And we always advise like long knees and short those. And some regimes, the models work great. So like with financial conditions on the right, when they're easing, I cannot pick banks, winners from losers at all. Why? Because the bad ones do better than the good ones. So it's one trade. But when it's tightening, I want to take my gross exposure up and be long and short a bunch because the model works great. It's really able to separate winners from losers. So That's I can use this as a gauge for you know when I should um, increase my gross exposure to use that vernacular. So for the people listening, like net means am I longer short the whole industry? Gross means am I picking winners from losers market neutral? The model works great picking winners market from neutral when financial conditions are tightening. So I want to measure that and then implement that as a, as, as a gross exposure advice. So there's a couple of reasons that I do it. Um, there's a bunch. There's probably 15 signals in each one. I don't have off the top of my head memorized. In this first but, chart, yeah. though, what's obvious to me is that there aren't any real false – like every one of these rallies in economic activity, mm -hmm. they don't roll over after bottoming. They, they persist for a little while. Yep. And that's probably because the economy itself doesn't turn on a dime all that easily – or, or very often. But financial conditions and, do. And, and I didn't want to create a signal where I was calling my biggest investors who are long-term investors and be like, story. hey, it got yeah, worse yeah, this yeah, month. Yeah. Hey, it got better than – you know. Okay. So it had to show like confirmation. Like if it's a weekly signal for me to change it, I think it has to be like 15 to 20 last weeks. It had the same – you know, it had to show some persistence because otherwise – a friend of mine who, who explained this to me, I like, he's like, you're walking your dog around Central Park and your dog's going to chase butterflies and yeah. piss on trees or whatever. And you know, when I ask you where you are, I don't mean like where the dog is. I mean like are you on like Central Park South or yeah, you Fifth want Avenue? Confirmation. Yeah, like you want where am I like holding Realistically, not like every so little perturbation. That, the guy that invented that yeah. uh, that metaphor for that's the economy versus the stock market. Yeah, the guy walking the dog is the economy. High frequency data point economist, right? Right. So that guy was a mutual fund manager, Ralph. I want to say Ralph Wagner. Okay. Um, and I think he had a career. You know, like right. a, He wrote me a letter because I used that analogy on TV. Nice. And he goes, "I really appreciate using the analogy, but." And I don't know. Yeah. I don't want any credit, <laughs> but I want you to know where it came from. That's pretty cool. And he sent me the column, and I think he wrote like, columns from like the nineties. That's so pretty awesome. I gotta go. You know, I might be using his last get name nice, wrong. I don't get nice letters. I I only get like use you pronounce this word well, let me, wrong let me, with your let Boston me, accent or whatever I get. Let me know? say one thing though. I don't get my own letters. They are filtered before they're given to me. Oh, oh my pure, god! So he couldn't oh, even curated letters. What a, what a diva! Yeah. <laughs> I, I I I said I said like some word that I had no business trying to pronounce on TV wrong. Yeah. I can't remember if it was ebullient and I said it ebullient or what it was. And this guy acted like I was, <laughs> you know. Uh, like I was, I was like post, um, you know, yeah, you? Uh, you know, the horseshoe scar on my head. He, he like really crushed me. John, can we throw the chart back lobotomy, up? Lobotomy, post lobotomy. So, yeah. so what's interesting is that 
economic conditions were contracting mm-hmm. for, you know, the Fed did what they had to do. Economic conditions were contracting. Mm-hmm. But when that bottomed, look how quickly financial conditions loosened. Do you think mm-hmm. that a lot of the loosening that the Fed was going to do has already been done for them and then maybe they're going to be less likely to cut however many times it's priced into the market? So one, my track record for calling the Fed is, is poor. Two, the firms I've worked at, their track record is incredibly poor. Uh, three, um, I don't understand why they do stuff like buy mortgage-backed securities when the housing market's on fire in every MSA in America. So, like, I don't know. So, stipulate. We're all guessing. But that – and, and – yeah, the Fed doesn't and, know what they're going to do either. either. And I don't either. do that for a living. Yeah. And if you search my website for the word Powell, it says zero search results. Given that mountain that of caveats – I don't think they can cut six or seven times before January 25 or whatever's in the price because that would – what I think I learned is that you need full employment and stable pricing. And I don't think the unemployment data are going to deteriorate at a rate that's going to merit that much uh, accommodation on the front end. And and I think part of – if I'm right directionally and it's two or three or less, I think it's because history – is is not helpful. The last three cycles were TMT crisis, global financial crisis, and COVID. This is not yet uh, I totally any, agree with that. Anywhere in one of those things. Yeah. So no, right. So now you could take those three, you could create composites. Yeah. What are you doing? Looks nothing like and you're, this. You know what that yeah. is? That's right. like when a little kid, you give them a paint set and their first day of finger painting or whatever it is, it's every color mixed together. It's just mud. There's, yeah. no, there's no information. When you do there. a lot, we do a lot of like data analysis, you know, and like sometimes you you have variables where like, you know, um, you know, it's a one if something happens and it's a zero if it doesn't, and then you 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 tell people the answer is 0.5. Like you tell them it's something that could never actually happen, yeah. right? I think that's a little bit of the problem of like using these three things and saying they're relevant, and that's what every quant struggles with is like what historical time frame and, and regime are relevant for you to analyze, and therefore if the future there's no analog out, for that. There's no analog. That's why I don't think there's no. a lot. Why I don't think they're going to cut as, as much as what's in the price. You have the bulls saying we're going to get seven rate cuts this year. I don't then think that's can, bullish. I think that's bearish. Time out. Things of have course. to tank. Why, yeah, are, right. they, right, right, why right. are they cutting rates seven times? Are you serious? Okay, fine. But whatever. That's the like, – uh, Bulls are saying right. the Fed's getting easier. Okay, fine. Then you get a CPI that's a little bit higher than expected. Okay, it's not seven. It's six. <laughs> right. At, okay. Then you get a retail sales number that's 0.6. Right. That's way hotter than expected. And they say, okay, it's still six cuts, but they're not going to do the first one until May. Okay, they're going to go May and then every single meeting after that, and you know this how. So so why even play that game? So look, one of the d- dumbest things that I s- accidentally started when I worked at Morgan Stanley was uh, <laughs> the phrase bad is good. Okay, and when you sit yeah. there and you have the you know, biggest firm, it gets distributed. And I was, oh, bad news is good. And and and, and I think that's right. When, early, when were you saying? When were you saying that? Uh, a European eleven, you know, European financial crisis. You know? Why was bad news good during the European financial because crisis? Because it was I was a, terrified. It, it was a pending accommodation, right? As soon as oh, okay. as soon as Draghi said, "I'll do whatever it takes," it was the biggest risk on signal ever, and it was hard to see in the moment because you felt like twenty twelve was incredible. Right. Right. And so, and then you started getting all those QE. So, okay, bad news is good. I think people think that that's always the case, and I've been arguing a lot with investors. Like, I, I don't know. We could just be like, good news is good and bad news is bad. Like, why does it always have to be good is bad, bad? I never believe good news is bad sustainably. It could be for like two trading days, but that I think if if the economy's good, it'll be good for equities, and I think if it gets bad, it won't be good in a linear line toward the accommodation. And I think that's where like, what I think, if you were yeah. right? Though? What if yeah. you were originally right as a young man, and bad news is good in a crisis. 
outside of a crisis, bad news is that's bad. That's what I was going to say. Bad, I think that's right. Bad, that's, that's fair. That's right. That's I think what we're saying. Bad the news is good if you're in a bear market and the market rallies on bad news. That's when it's good. Yeah. yeah. Outside of that. Yeah. I, I think I think if you if you have a problem, they need to stop it. Sure. But if it's just sort of like things are slowing from the highest nominal GDP in our lifetime, uh, and, and why would they do se- like ma- rapid fire? Uh, well, there's one reason why they would do it because they claim that their target is two percent, and if right. you get and if you do get two percent this year, which who knows? Yeah, but you need full employment. You have to have an unemployment problem. If they cut six times with full employment, yeah, we have pretty good employment, and then they're going to create another bubble. The the markets mm-hmm. the IPO window is going to open wide up, right. and asset prices are going to go nuts, and we're going to be right back to where we started. I, I you know, my my yeah, could be I. I'm positive. Yeah, I, I'm I, just kidding. I know I, it could be. I, I just don't know how to calculate what they do. Um, I know that through my career, I haven't found economists all that helpful um, in terms of. I think it's good to like okay, see where I am and understand. But in terms of like predicting anything, uh, because I think the stock market predicts the economy and not vice versa. So you'll find out, you know, in what four or five months how the GDP was last year. Well, if the stock market's predicting the economy, we're not having a recession this year. Right. Let's talk and, about the consumer. And if it's predicting it in China, they might be. And I think those, yeah. are, the, the, those are the ways I look. And that's kind of consistent with how I think about it. So actually. the, cons- the yeah. consumer is the economy. It's 70% of nominal GDP. Right. Adam, you wrote in aggregate, the magnitude of the consumer slowdown will likely be the key macro story yeah. for this year. As short of a precipitous economic collapse, industrial activity appears to be close to bottoming. Right. What are we looking at here? So these are the other two gauges that you guys pulled out, and we have a bunch of these. The consumer one, um, anticipating Josh's question, is more like wages, jobs, retail sales, credit card delinquencies, consumer confidence, like consumer-related stuff. And the industrial one is more uh, – on the right is more um, a combination of activity, industrial production, ISM, uh, rig count, auto SAR, and then also logistics like drive-in rate per mile and like stuff that's getting moved around, you know, kind of trucking and cost. So I'm trying to like isolate the industrial part of the economy on the right and the consumer part on the left. There's no, there's no question. If I gave you the job right now, yo, go back to your desk and tell me how the consumer's doing, I think you're going to say decent shade absolute return but declining, right? You're seeing that from, you know, slow pickups and 90-day credit card delinquencies right. and that kind of stuff. I, I don't think it's collapsing. I just it's think slowing it's, down. it's slowing from so like a pretty hot rate. Bank I think of that's America fair. showed that yeah. uh, their spending was 10% year over year in 2022, 4% year over year in 2023. I think if we get that again in 2024, that would be pretty good. So <laughs> the, the consumer is fine. I don't think anybody would say they're on fire, but they're it's fine. Just not, it's just not 2021. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And and that's my view. And that's why I think I'm, you know, directionally positive. But there's no know, divergence here. It's just it just looks like it's degrees. These look these may, look may, like the same chart. Maybe said another way, like it was at an all time high on this. These are, you know, normalized scales. So think of them as like Z Z scores or whatever. So, you know, you, you were at like an all time high when they pumped all the money, you know, uh, uh, into the economy you know, on the helicopter money post COVID. So the consumer was on fire and they were spending like crazy. And that's why inflation went through the roof. And that's why it was. What's concerning you know, about this chart yeah. is it never ends other than in negative territory. Yeah. And the problem. So that's what I mean. Well, it doesn't stop short. Yeah. Once it's going down, that's it. It's going negative. A couple in like mm. 2011 to but 17. But it's going to 96. Yeah. A couple 11 to 17 yeah. and it's going to 96, right? Because we didn't have all the gauges. But I, I think I think it's hard to tell because, you know, I, I don't think – I think about the consumer like as an income statement. So the number of – the revenue in that analog would be number of people working time, number of dollars per hour. The, like the wages times um, employed total is still pretty good. So – 
you know, just savings they can make. You know, when you add it all up, you know, year over year personal income growth, uh, some of it looks okay to me. I, I don't see the consumer as likely to tank. This might be a dumb question. Yeah. Does does spending drive the economy? Or does the economy drive spending? In other words, if the economy slows down huh. because people are getting laid off, then obviously they'll stop spending. Absent that, they're not going to stop spending. Yeah, it's it's probably access to borrow is like number one, you know, like demand for loans, like the ability to borrow. Because like so many people live on access to being able to borrow. But know? we saw credit consumer credit pull back, right? And still the economy powered on. The, the richest group of people which drive like half the total spending are I said that on TV today. I said it on TV today. Yeah, okay. There's this really perverse thing going on where um, this rapid increase in interest rates after 15 years of zero rates, all of a sudden, we now have a third pillar to the wealth effect. It made inequality worse? No. I'm saying it's defeating the Fed's purpose. Yeah, housing is really important for uh, the wealth effect, obviously. Yeah. It's the most important asset to the most home households right. is the value of the home. Okay, that's one. Two is the stock market. We got 401ks at record highs again. Okay. Now you got a third wealth effect. Holy shit. I have $200,000 in the bank and look how much look how much income it's throwing off. I feel rich because of my home. I feel even richer because of my stocks. Right. And whoa, yeah, my you, bank is paying if me. You, if you take these high net worth so individual that, so, guys. So now you yeah, take that upper, yeah, that upper yeah. income, not was, even the top 10, so the tight, top 30. So tightening was stimulative. The only way they can slow the consumer down is by cutting rates. You, I'm convinced. If you, if, you think about, <laughs> if you think about the big networks, of, of the big private networks that have you know, you know, two, $2 trillion plus dollars, like that group, you know, the few of them. I think they, they report this data, you know, the average financial advisors, mid-60s and their average clients, late 60s, something yeah. like that. And so there's a lot of folks in that cohort who have $20 million, right? And they spend, you know, four or 500 grand a year and don't want to dig into the principal and live for the rest That's of their right. life. And so all of a sudden, you know, um, you know, they kind of might have benefited from the greatest two-way street ever, right? For the 20, 30 years they needed to accumulate wealth, the stock market was basically a monster. And now, you know, they're able to like kind of capitalize and live off the interest-bearing portion of the principal without taking much risk. So like they might win. You know, you might look back like and be like – This has happened yeah. before. Yeah. This, this, if you watch if, – if you watch Smokey and the Bandit or you watch Cannibal Run, I, I forget which one it was. Or Bone Tomahawk. No, no, no. You Does watch this say Burt Reynolds. Uh, you watch like the Burt Reynolds oeuvre okay. Okay. of the early '80s. <laughs> All right, Cannibal. How do you spell oeuvre? By the way, who do you think is listening to this podcast? My grandparents. Smokey and the Bandit. The the point I'm trying to make is in the early '80s there was there was a there was, that, a, there was there a, a wealth very boom. fancy. Is that a tilde on that? Okay, yeah, stop flexing on us. There <laughs> was a wealth boom in the early '80s. Yeah, and interest rates were at twenty percent. Right. So it should not be lost on anyone. We had lifestyles of the rich and famous came along in the early '80s. We had this massive boom in obscene wealth. I, I, I remember this guy maybe 15 years ago. He tried to pitch me on um, whole term insurance. Okay. Okay. And he was using the whole trailing performance of long dated bonds argument where it was like locked in from, you know, 80, yeah. 80, yeah, 80 yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah. 2010 as if that was going to be the go forward return. And it was like, it was like, he didn't realize that like he was brushing back the pile of leaves with like the deepest hole in the least possible when yes. he was pitching me that product. Yes. I'm like, I'll buy term, get out of here. Yes. <laughs> right. Give me 20, 20 your term. Get fine. out of so my what's your point? My point <laughs> no, is- No, I get it. It's like the, it's a rate, it's a, it's a rate environment. My point yeah. is it's not a guarantee that you could slow the consumer down, especially the wealthy consumer. 
just by raising the rate, the, right. the, 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 the level of interest rates. You can slow the low-end consumer down when you don't give them access to borrow. That's why 100%, I said that. You yeah. have to give them access to credit. So if that dries up, financial conditions tighten a ton, that's why things yeah. slow because then they can't access it through, you know, credit cards that tighten up or have bad vintages or through, you know, home equity borrowing, you know, that kind of stuff. No, but, it's funny. Paradoxically, yeah. I, I made the joke earlier, but I think I'm, I think I'm turning serious on this. If the Fed does ease and they lower rates, people who have money in money market funds are going to feel like they're tightening. It's like, wait, what the hell? I was getting 5%. Now you're giving me 4 Yes, that's my point. Wait, by the way, who do you – when you when you <laughs> see news, they're going to open a Louis Vuitton hotel on the Champs-Élysées. It's shaped – it's literally shaped like a like a what Louis Vuitton. What the hell are you talking Trump. about? You're dropping these names. Nobody knows what you're talking about. On adults, the who? Adults are speaking. I, I, I adults are speaking. On the what? I, yeah, sorry, I didn't remember my fucking suit today. I know exactly what he's talking about. So when you hear that that hotel yeah. is it's it's not even open yet. They're building a massive new hotel we have an audience. store. It's full for six. It's full for six months. This guy's talking Ch French. Champs is like the Fifth Avenue of Paris. Yeah, I'm sorry. connecting from the Arc de Triomphe down. Unbelievable. It's where all go. the fancy stores are. Look at this. Yeah, you hear that this is like booked six months. Six months. Duncan, you know you have any is? idea what he's talking about? I'm sorry. He does. I know the brand. I've never heard of this hotel. It's new. It's new. It's new. That's yeah. why you haven't heard of it yet. It's yeah. You shouldn't have heard of it yet. Well, this stock is like one that a cult stock that a lot of people follow and pay attention to. My so point is the people the, that are yeah. booking this hotel, right. they are not borrowing money. Correct. Okay. And that's a big driver. And then this the rest is, is important. Borrow, the rest is access. This is important distinction. The yeah. people that are filling up uh, the Caribbean I, I, no, I have are, the, I, not, are not borrowing money to I do it. I have a friend that we send each other the most absurd CPI things from traveling around the country. You know, I, get, I travel a lot to see folks and we send each other funny stuff, you know, pistachios or 19 bucks at O'Hare or whatever. He sent me one the other day. Uh, this was at the St. Regis in New York. Hand squeeze 100% pure Valencia orange juice, 25. Stop. <laughs> Where? St. Regis in New York. Oh, you're yeah, kidding 55th, me. Uh, 55th and 5th. Hand squeeze. For what, a gallon? No, I think it's just an OJ for breakfast, twenty five bucks. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so that's that's the current CPI leader I, in the club. That's the CPI leader in the clubhouse. <laughs> we have to eliminate people that pay twenty five dollars for an orange juice. Now, not your friend, but whoever's doing him. it. He did not get it. He did not get it. He just photographed. He just photographed the menu. Who is ordering that? That's Holy a corporate. Shit. That's an expense account uh, item. I, you're not I, paying for that yourself. I mean, when you factor in, uh, and I wrote this back to him, when you factor in the 20% gratuity and the 8.875% tax, you're around, you know, 31. And, How could and you be bearish equities uh, if motherfuckers uh, uh, are paying right. $25 so for you're, you're in the three to $4 an ounce range. Time out, though. Val uh, Valencia. <laughs> it's like gas. It's does like that gas. Mean it's not for, does that mean it's from out of overseas? Gallon. Valencia is uh, Spanish? I, 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 is I that think, why it's I so much? I think it's a region in California and in Spain. Where's Valencia? Is, it, is that orange from California? Let's or from bring Spain? it back. Let's, let's, I think, let's, I think let's it's just domestic. a kind of orange. I think it's just a kind of. Oh, orange. it's just a type of but, orange. But I think I originally so. from from Spain. Maybe I don't know originally. Good. But yeah. Yeah. Good. Good work. All right. So uh, so Adam. Right, let's shift. Let's Adam. Shift dovishness. <laughs> uh, this is a good chart. Dovishness yes. means higher price to forward earnings ratios, particularly. For growth stocks. So I was a little bit confused when uh, I first looked at this chart, but explain is, it. Explain all it. All right. So the left chart shows the black staircase. It's just the Fed fund futures. Mm -hmm. right? I'm sorry, the Fed, the Fed fund rate, the, the front end. And so, you know, it moved in March of 22 and kind of staircased up. And then the other lines, FF12, 24, and 36, those are Fed fund futures 12, 24, and 36 months from now. How do people see and perceive rates one, two, or three years in the future. And what you saw is they were very anticipatory of the first initial movement of the front end. And, and um, I think that really mattered. The right side shows, for those statistics geeks that are listening, 
sort of the statistical relationship or T-statistic between the price to forward earnings for growth stocks and the perception about rates. And it was highly negative, meaning um, when um, people thought rates were going to go up, multiples got killed. And you saw that in late 21, all the way right. through 22, et cetera. We lived it. Right. And then earlier this year, around March of tw- a year ago, it t- stopped mattering. The relationship changed because people thought, all right, we're probably closer to the end of the cycle than the beginning. And so it no longer mattered and people got incrementally hawkish. So it, it just was a way of kind of you know, statistically dimensioning that perception about future rates can meaningfully impact you know, uh, the multiples for companies, so particularly growth stocks. In 20, the end of 21 and 22, especially yeah. when interest rates moved higher, growth stocks got killed, killed and vice versa. Do you think we're past that where interest rates are not the single biggest the, driver the, for the, equities? The relationship is still statistically significant and negative today because that those black dotted horizontal lines on the right side are the band of statistical significance for those of you hearkening back to your uh, you know, stat one one days, but so it still, it still matters. I think if they got, um, much more hawkish and kind of came out with a clear hawkish message, it probably wouldn't be great for equities in a couple month view. But also, it also, it's always changing which stocks it's hitting. So on the recent rip in the 10 year, right. utilities have gotten destroyed over the last yeah, week and a half or so. This, exactly. This was the growth universe. When we do all the risk work for people, that's where we're really careful. We look at the correlation of every stock to a Fed fund futures because what I don't want people to do, especially hedge funds, is be long you know, growth stocks with a negative correlation to uh, interest rates, short, melting ice cube, utilities, slow-growing stuff that has a positive correlation. And then if somehow rates move the wrong way, they get crushed on both sides of the book. We say those correlations are not static. And we talked about that when I was on your show a couple years ago. And the reason I just remembered as I was talking live is I used the phrase Texas hedge. And that's what you titled my addition because you're Texas hedged if you're kind of having Meaning you're doubling down. Yeah, you have that outsized, you know, bet. So, put, right. You're yeah. putting on an exposure in the wrong direction. Right. Both, both sides. Both sides of the book. So I think you have to, like when you make that point about utilities, you have to be careful that in your portfolio, you know, you're not exacerbating that rate bet all over the place. So if you if you don't like utilities for, you know, because a lot of them are indebted and they're exposed to refinancing risk or whatever, then maybe you have to own staples that maybe also, you know, trade around rates, but are, are cheaper or have less negative. Out- well, you have to kind of be balanced about how you think about beating the S&P because otherwise you're just making a huge interest rate bad. And if you're right, great. And if you're wrong, you kind of get annihilated. You know, there is a universe in which we have almost no rate volatility at all this year. No, cu- no cuts. And not a lot of movement as a result, at least in the yeah, two year. We've seen some volatility early on. It would be bullish for equities if they did nothing and just kept threatening for accommodation in the future, I think. Because then you would just the econ- that means the data are good enough economically that, that they don't need to but do it. But how about this? And to, you can dream the next moves accommodation on right. that. Right. To my point yeah. about the correlations not being static, they change. So here's the 10 year mm-hmm. ripping higher. Here's XLK ripping to an all time high. And what's XLK? Which XLK is, is the uh, technology ETF. Oh, okay. I was talking or the cues, basically right. some similar exposure. I was talking so, same, to somebody. Same chart. Sorry, here's here are the cues. I was talking to somebody who was saying that, who was saying that, that if and, you and, have that push and pull, right, and you just we had massive rate volatility over the last three years. But, sorry, that we, we that chart I showed was a rolling six month window. You know, uh, between the relationship and multiples, like it can change for yeah, sure. Yeah, you know I'm saying it changes. I think the problem is, I, if I do like a one month window, then I just get a lot of spurious stuff. So it's, I'm not sure what the length is. For sure, it changed. And, you know, a year ago, the right call was we're close to the interest rate cycle. 
ending and therefore I should be bullish on equities. Everyone else thinks it's down the first half and maybe up in the second half, so you should be up in the first half. Like that was the correct call. And part of it was saying that we're toward the end of the interest rate cycle. I think we're in that same period now. You can't argue that we're likely to hike way more than we're likely to cut. So since I like that skew, then I'm willing to wait for them to cut and maybe cut less than what's priced in. To me, but, that's bullish. But not to be the source of death, but in the yeah. first half of last year, we saw massive increase in the 10-year, a huge run. And guess what? The NASDAQ 100 had the best first half of the year, I think, ever, as interest rates were skyrocketing. So, so those relationships are not set in stone. Of course not. If they were, then you right. nobody would need a cross-asset view, right? right. And, and, and I agree. But I could... That's because in my twisted brain, generally, when the economy is good, the 10-year yield should go higher. It's like indicative of a stronger economy. Why was the market good last year? AI. Well, one, you had the biggest upward sales revisions of any mega company yeah, so ever that. in NVIDIA. <laughs> Two, the bear case in earnings did not form. All the bullish bracket firms were out with a 180 earnings number, 190, and it didn't happen. Earnings didn't really go down from February to the end of the year. We had three consecutive quarters of earnings declines, and that was it. Yeah, and it was all in the second half of the 2022 and the early 20. Right. right, so so it didn't it, it didn't the bear case didn't materialize. And, you know, and then also like people said, we're close to the end of the rate cycle. And so they can dream that the, that the harshest part of the tightening is over. And, and that that's kind of all, all it took. And then I think as CPI moderated, you know, uh, margin, the margin dream got better again. So like, I'm not saying it's hard to have a year like last year and say it'll be just as good this year. So, you know, the other day on, 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 on air, like uh, Scott asked me, are you incrementally bullish? And so I reacted <laughs> to the word incrementally, like, no, you can't be incrementally bullish because incrementally means I think we're going to be up more than we were last year. But am I still skewed to the positive? Yeah. That, that, you know, that's the parsing. Yeah, how did he like that response? It, I, generally, he's, you know, loves, loves what I say. Okay. <laughs> Agree. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This is you. If the economy slows but doesn't hit a recession— and interest rates slowly continue their path toward a normal yield curve, we could see materially higher equities in 12 to 18 months. Yeah. Uh, this is your chart. Yep. So this is earnings. Yep. You say base case earnings grow to $237 a share, which would be 7.2% growth in 2024. Mm -hmm. $252 a share in 2025. It's another six and change percent. Right. The bottom up consensus uh, so that would be below, below the bottom up consensus right. of two forty five going to two seventy four. That's a wide gap between you and the consensus. What do they see that you don't see? These do are you the, think these are the bottom up? If you're showing this slide, these are the bottom up sell side consensus estimates. Not mine. I'm just kind of bottom uh, up is all of the analysts covering all of the stocks. Right. This is the sum total yeah. of their every single one of the five hundred stocks. This is we not you versus other strategists. We take the median estimate bottom yes. up every okay. analyst, and we say, "What'd you get for that company?" We add up all five hundred. We go back and type for it. So it's very. Um, yeah. Bottoms up is when you take a glass of alcohol and empty it down <laughs> right. your mouth. Bottom uh, up is, yeah. is a jelly bean jar yeah. and uh, yeah. and the guesses yeah. of like thousands right. of people. And top down is what like strategists do where they sort of say, okay, the economy's doing this. And so I think earnings will be a few percent above or below. It's like, it's not like at the company level. So, um, you know, we have like a long, so let me answer your question directly. Uh, forward earnings data, meaning these kind of estimates from analysts have existed since 1978. On average in January of each year, um, analysts' bottom-up estimates were 14 for 14 percent earnings growth in, in in the average year, and the actual has been seven. <laughs> right. So there's a long path of downward earnings revisions as their second half of the year optimism typically doesn't unfold. Uh, doesn't you know happen the way they forecast. The uh, the stock market obviously goes up 
a lot during years where there's downward revision. So the first point I would say is it doesn't really matter if there's downward revisions to the bottom investments. What matters is do you think earnings are going to be higher in absolute terms next year than this year or this year than last year? That matters more. So I think there's going to be earnings growth in 24. Just not as much as the bottoms up consensus. Yeah, just not as much as the bottom up consensus. And there was was – not much earnings growth. I mean, it looks like it'll be, we'll see when we get the full uh, Q4 numbers in. Looking flat, looking like flattish year over year. The current is 0.8% bottom up your earnings growth. But there was a lot of dispersion. Totally. So that's that top number in the 2023 column for S&P, where it says 0.8. It's the two numbers above the green highlighted 27. That's where, that's sort of the, Total S and P earnings bottom up for this year. We still have, you know, a little bit uh, for the listeners. A little bit of the Q four. So all uh, the growth, all the growth came from three sectors: consumer discretionary, communication services, and real estate. That surprised me. Um, and a lot of the losses came from energy, which had a thirty percent decline in earnings, at least projected for the year. Healthcare and the stocks there got killed. The materials. All these stocks look like shit, especially materials and healthcare. Yeah. So these are the year-over-year earnings growth numbers. So. Um, you know the uh, the estimates, um, which are almost fully baked here, three three quarters in. Uh, yeah, those, we don't have Q four numbers. We don't have the Q four numbers yet, okay. but they are. Um, you know, uh, they they were quite bad. And obviously, the oil prices and copper and cetera what came down a lot. And I think the healthcare is probably the most surprising, uh, just because um, you had some COVID hangover stuff on the drug side. And, Pfizer, Moderna, yeah, killed. Um, but the healthcare services businesses um, generally. Have pretty good pricing power, so I, I think. What are some of those names? UNH is the biggest. It's a great stock. Yeah, they had a little bit of a cost issue earlier this month where they got it to medical costs. But like, I know as someone who has a small business in New York, like they have incredible pricing power over. Me. Yes, look at this. Yeah. What are you going to do about surgical it? Surgical looks like an, at an all-time high. So Dexcom and two of a surgical, those kind of companies got like a little bit of a weird um, GLP sell-off, like in in the summer where. You know, somehow people were gonna, um, you know, be thin and never need healthcare procedures again. We said to fade yeah. that on on this on this yeah, show. Yeah. We never it we was, never bought into that narrative. Yeah, for me, the most obvious one was Brown Foreman and Coca Cola. Ridiculous. Yeah, there was a day. I think the what's the day the bond markets you know uh, closed up? Got up Columbus Day. Here's Coca Cola. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I said there was a screaming buy. Did I not? Yeah, so we all did. If we you all look did. at that yeah. V, we wrote about this on, on October seventh, which was the Columbus Day. That's the bond guys don't work and the equity guys do. <laughs> that thing traded below 20 times forward at Coke. And and you looked at it and you're like – Should have bought it. Damn. Like like that's a pretty good brand. And then they put up like 10% growth constant currency. Like it's not like it's yeah. a shrinking company. Yeah. And and then the other one that I think is funny is Brown Foreman. So like I wrote this thing about Jack and Coke. Like you're telling me that, you know, there's going to be no Jack Daniels and no Coca-Cola consumed. Like I, the, you want to bet against a U.S. consumer – Go ahead. As don't bet against Jack and Coke. The US alcoholic. <laughs> don't out. do it. As yeah. if Coca-Cola hasn't adapted before. Diet Coke. Yeah. Literally. Right. Coke Zero. <laughs> they sell water. Like it, Coke it'll be Zempic. fine. Coke Zempic. Coke <laughs> It's coming. Yeah, they could put put it right in there and then, you know, tighten it up for your your, you know. Adam, let's talk about weekend. let's talk about where the earnings growth is going to come from. Yeah. Um you have a slide the biggest companies have uh, strong earnings yeah. growth. This is, this, I, I love, love this. I love yeah. this. Let me, just, let me just read this for you, yeah. Adam, yeah. or for the audience. Yeah. The biggest 20 companies in the S&P 500 have significantly higher net income dollars and earnings growth than in 2020. Any pre-COVID comparisons are silly. I don't think people know this. So a 10% miss in 2025 earnings expectations would still yield 2x the net income dollars in 2025 versus 2020. Yeah. Holy I, shit. And that doesn't count the buyback. So if you go get earnings per share, it'll be even higher. I think, Wait, how, I think what's happening what that means? I think what was happening is people were saying six months ago, um, 
COVID was a weird thing. It was a bubble. They government stimulated in. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. We'll go back to 2019 and we'll compare earnings to 2019. And that's how we'll get, you know, I think Q4 2019 earnings were $43 a share for the S&P. So you multiply by four, 172. So wow. people are throwing a 180 earnings number out when they were bearish in the middle of last year. And hey, I'm negative on equities. Earnings right. are going back to 180. Now with $25. So I, I took the biggest 20. Yeah, I put the biggest 20 companies. I said, okay, well, here's your 2018 net income dollars. You know how much net income dollars they earned. Here's your 2020. I have every year, but I couldn't fit it in the chart. And I said, all right, they're supposed to, these are the biggest 20 companies, Apple, Berkshire, JP Morgan, whatever. Here's their net income dollars. And here's what the analysts think it'll be in 24 and 25. Holy shit. Look at Apple. So it's 796 million, uh, sorry, billion in 2025. And That's was the net income dollars of, of the, the biggest top 20, 20 companies, companies combined. Okay. So it's, a, you know, 0. 0.8, 0.8 trillion. This is why you own stocks. And then you look at the 2020 numbers, there were 382. So 382 times two is 760. So if they miss by like a decent amount, it's still twice as much net income. You can't get these companies Out of back how? to 2018, Wait a minute. 2020 numbers. How is it possible that this collect, are they the same 20 companies? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So how is it possible that these 20 companies have gone from 340 billion in profits a year to 800 billion? They're really good. Because it's a five-year growth it, rate. It, and five in five year, years. You double, like it's 15% per year for five years is how you do it. And these but they were already gigantic. Per- it's really incredible. Come on. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, pricing, you know, power, moats, technology, acquisition. Yeah. I'm blown everything. away by this. Apple, for example, forget, forget about Apple. Uh, let's use Home Depot. So Home Depot was 11 billion in 2018, 13 billion in 2020, and projected to do 16 yeah. billion by 2020. Actually, do you know what's the one that's crazy? Visa. Because that's literally spending. Yeah. That's that's tra- actually tracking the economy. 11.2 billion. They grow 15% per year. It's, to 20 billion. Visa grows 15% per year. Yeah, it's, a good, good it's, it's not a conspiracy. I, uh, think, I think the one that you want to look at is conspiracy. NVIDIA. No, it's not. Listen, consumer NVIDIA's spending at Bank of America was 40. <laughs> Wait, where's NVIDIA? Consider Give me the number. Uh, 2018. Six, six billion to 60 billion. So it's, six billion to 60. Yeah, it's normal. Consumer spending <laughs> at Bank of America was 35% higher in 2023 than 2019. So look, we these, spend more you, money you, every you, year. You, you, I guess the point is like these guys are so big that even if they miss by a ton, you're going to have way more earnings. Just it's, it's hard. So the bull cases are not these guys, but that's why I said at the beginning of the show, like the average company can show some margin expansion. Yeah. And nobody's guys, pricing that in, right? These guys are immune to CPI. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. It's the average guy who sells, Actually, you know, higher CPI, like literally helps them raise prices even faster. It didn't, it didn't matter. It, it killed the profit margins of the other companies. So to the extent that CPI continues to moderate, you know, you'll see, you know, a higher chance for margin. Chart on. Next one. We got it. Adam, talk to us. We've got your margins chart. There's a great story in here. Okay. So we're looking at, the. you said the median company's gross margins have bottomed. Yeah. And yeah, so this was part of, yeah. Look at that sure. mega. So Talk so, us through this, please. Yeah. So the left side just shows the median company's gross margin. So you can see got killed. Uh, you know, 48% was the high in 2020. Yeah, kind of like 42, 43. Dropped the trough. F- and so, look, it's always hard to call, like, this is definitely it, because you can see some squiggles and down previously, but it's not like it just went up one month. It looks like it's been kind of flattish to maybe slightly above the But the right chart is the more interesting And then one. the right one is the mega cap companies, which are basically on a 25-year trend of somewhat slightly higher gross margins. And the right, it's a little bit pinched in the scale, but margins got killed for these guys, you know. The non-mega uh, caps. Yeah, the non-mega caps. Do you happen to have the next slide, too, or did, uh, did I? I don't. Okay. Which was that? I don't think so. Okay, it's okay. Nope. The, the next one actually shows um, – 
that relationship between CPI and and the non-mega cap margin. So you can really see it was like strong and statistically significant. So that's part of the reason why I told you up front. Like I think maybe it's bottomed. It's maybe it's bottomed. Yeah. I want to do something on uh, stock picking with you. Yeah. Uh, you put out a note on pairwise correlations, and let's talk about the tech sector. So you break it yeah. down into like twelve subsectors. Yeah. You point out well, there's that, you got that we just yeah did we got that. it you guys did that today you guys, are, yeah, yeah. you guys are you guys are. We, this on is, it. This is this is a uh, your operational you, improvement. We come prepared. I told you this was the best investing podcast in the you world. You know what? Right? When I was on whatever it was eighteen months, two years ago, you, uh, you, the game was not this tight. This, <laughs> Dude, this is elite. You guys have gone. The, the listeners you, and the viewers. You guys have had at least fifteen percent net income growth <laughs> per year. You guys should be stock twenty one on this. Uh, uh, so, yeah. so you made a you made a really interesting case here that yeah. A lot of CIOs, especially bottom bottom up fundamental focused yeah. CIOs, they will tell you, uh, you know, I don't worry about the macro because it either it doesn't affect my stocks or yeah. even if it did, I can't quantify. I'm a cold blooded stock picker. I only do buy my stock picking. Right, right. So you so you said, well, you may not care about the macro, but the macro cares about you, <laughs> and you're looking at correlations between stocks within all the sectors, but the tech sector in particular. Yeah. Um, you think CIOs do need to pay attention because at certain times. There's going to be a lot more or less correlation between the names in a given group. Yeah. So what we're doing here um, is we say, if I know if like the the market's up or not, if I know if growth stocks beat value, if I know if large stocks beat small, and a couple other factors, how much of every stock's returns can I explain? So yeah. if if the market rips and growth beats value and large beats small, I can explain like seventy percent of Microsoft's returns. Right. On a given day, like it's so you can't tell me you're a cold-blooded Microsoft stock picker and you don't care if the market's up and growth be value and large be small because that's 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 most that's of what's ridiculous. happening in the price. That's ridiculous, right? Yeah, yeah. So we measure that logic for every stock every day over time, and we try to help CIOs sort of say, all right, if you were starting a tech fund today, where do you have a better chance of deploying resources to generate alpha, and where is it more of like a macro call or like a risk Beta. management call that you yeah that you want to kind of make the portfolio strategy? So that's kind of what we do. So so when we look at it, we say, okay, where is the level of company-specific risk? Did it go up or down? Where's it versus history to try to help people? And then we have it at the name level. So what this chart shows on the left is just that actually the blue line in tech is slightly below the market X tech, the top 3,000. So that's not intuitive. Tech guys think they're cold-blooded stock pickers, but they're like kind of just as macro as everyone else. But what are you looking for, a lower number or a higher? CSR is- If it's higher, company-specific company risk is higher, then that's a place that you want to craft your trade if you're like a stock More picker. More opportunities yeah, for Because you could separate yourself from others- yeah. But Something is company specific still matters. If okay. you, but if it's if it's like pretty low, so tech is you know you know it's 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 half to sort of seventy percent company specific. So it's not like it's the worst sector. I'm not so saying Adam, that. Adam, you so you yeah. have sem semiconductors and semi. They're the most macro part of it, right? Which makes and sense. semi They're materials and equipment. You're saying those are thirty five percent CSR. They're uh, they're fifty percent fifty two percent now so like half macro right. and half company specific and that's in the thirty fifth percentile versus their history so it's a little bit lower than average but the point is just that you can't say no semi analysts would say I don't care about macro at all I only do <laughs> right. Uh, right. stock picking because there's a Macri cycle cares about you now right. in yeah. application software you mentioned specifically that like that's an area right. where if you get the company right it's really going to make a difference relative to the other companies yeah. in the group. So we show like four or five different things like this. Company-specific risk is one of them to assess the alpha. And at the summary point of that, you know, uh, building a crescendo of excitement to get you to the edge of your seat is that application software is an area where you probably could use a bottom-of-stock picking analyst because I think last year was a good example where 
Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think something like 41 of them beat the market by 20% or more and 58 application software companies lagged by 20% or more. So like somebody who's a software stock picker shouldn't be able to say, oh, it was like a tough market for me to find alpha. Like maybe they were just bad at it because there was tons of names that beat or lagged by 20. Obviously, if the market goes up 40, it's hard to make absolute money shorting stuff. But if you short stuff that goes right. up less than 20 and you long stuff that goes up more than 60, that's a that's a cocktail for you know for success. So I, I I try to focus people across the whole market, including in tech in specific. We have a tech strategy product, but you know, where they should deploy resources. And and a lot of it, I think what was really interesting in the tech part, my own view, is that when I looked at the names that were most company specific, like most idiosyncratic, you look at the names among large caps, and it was like Dell, Hewlett. Intel, Cisco, Micron, Oracle. I thought, old wow, tech. these are old tech. Yeah. The stuff that's the least Shopify, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and because it, rates move and they move. So all of a sudden you're like, all right, everyone who thinks they're, you know, focused on new tech, there might be some use for the old tech because they're a little bit more idiosyncratic. They're doing spinoffs. They got VMware. They're doing deals. Yeah. And, so there's some more idiosyncratic stuff. And they have low correlation relatively to the newer tech. So maybe that's a better tech strategy. Find one or two of the old ones you like that have something idiosyncratic to go on top of. You know, so so I think that was a little bit kind of, I don't know, novel sounds grandiose, but it was kind of interesting to some of my tech guys who were reading it. Because I don't do, when I do tech strategy, I don't go in and be like, oh, this software stacks in hand. That, that's too fundamental no, they've for me. already done it's that. It's more the portfolio strategy. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. Uh, right. You said something similar, banks versus insurance. You're right. We drop. We, <laughs> Turnovers we and penalties will kill you. <laughs> we got to water down. It's okay. <laughs> uh, John, this chart, banks versus insurance from Adam. Yeah. You guys put this up over the last couple of days and you're pointing out that this is not just a text thing that you're tracking. Yeah. yeah. Th- wh- what do you think is behind this? What's the reason for – this is a huge uh, separation yeah. between the performance of banks versus insurance stocks. I think, I think. look, I mean we have some clients that are you know, financial – financials PMs or if you're a large-cap value PM and financials are a big part of your index. And I think it's hard because they, they, the stocks are super correlated to each other and you just feel like it's one-way rate bad and you know it's hard to separate. So – you know, a lot of times people say, well, maybe I should own a couple of insurers and they'll be a little bit, you know, defense. And so, you know, it's still a little bit high correlation in absolute terms, but they've come down a lot. I think it's because in that risk on trade, um, some of the lower quality banks went up a lot and the insurance right. companies didn't participate as much. And so if you're looking out going forward, you could say, all right, well, maybe I can find, you know, some insurance that have pretty good risk reward. And it's not exactly the same bet as the regional bank. So it's a little bit like financial strategy, you know, trying to yeah. find, because I'm always worried of just at least... I try to be honest, like maybe you just want to own all of one low quality stock. And if you're right, you'll make the most money possible, but that's not a great risk management approach uh, right. for, so I think we try to track these sort of changes in correlation or when they're changing, say, okay, that could be a little bit of defense. The, other, the word correlation is tricky not to get on my professorial soapbox, but like the problem is like you want correlation when things are good, Right. And, and and like you could go up two percent every day, and you could go up six percent every day, and you have a correlation of one. But I'd rather be you, right? So like it, it's misleading a little bit when things are good. You just don't want it when things are bad. Right. And so that's why you have to sort of everybody wants to be correlated to whatever's right. going on. Right. That, that right. twenty twenty, the COVID spike when everything was just going down, down every day. That's right. wild. Holy yeah, shit. yeah. And that was hard to play. It was hard to play defense, and for sure, financials were not the place uh, to be. Buybacks. Right? Yeah. John, can you skip ahead? Are buybacks good for shareholders, <laughs> not for value stocks? Let me re- let me read you, yeah. and then you'll react to it. Uh, sure. We would have guessed that buybacks would be a good strategy for value stocks, as it can often be a meaningful source of earnings per share growth for that cohort. However, there is virtually no subsequent performance differentiation among value stocks for big decreases or increases in shares outstanding 
over a 12-month period. Yeah. What's going on here? So, look, we could spend weeks talking about this topic. I am not busy. Companies, like, they want to buy back. One of the, I'll go, I'll, let's go back. Buybacks, wait, wait, can we can we set the stage? Yeah. Buybacks were fairly muted last year because of the higher cost of capital. Right. It just wasn't, people were laying off employees. They weren't focused as much on allocation decisions. Or do I have that wrong? You know, net net 2% buyback for the OS&P, something like that. I mean, okay. you know, um, you know, I, I'll explain the chart quickly. Um you know the, the the group on the right is growth stocks. The middle are a, a, a middle zone called neither, and the right are value stocks. We break the market into you know thirds, and then the from left to right, it's you know your volatility adjusted performance. If you bought back two and a half percent or more of your shares, uh, the shares were kind of half to two and a half percent lower, around neutral and gray, and then you start diluting. So at growth stocks, you want to avoid massive dilution, for sure. But if you look at like the right where value is, the blue bar, which is buying back two and a half percent or more. You know, barely does better than the gray bar, which is keeping your shares un- not much difference un- at all, unchanged. Yeah. And so, if you think about that over multiple years, like if you're buying back two and a half percent of your shares two, three years in a row, and you're not outperforming someone who's doing anything, like the by definition, that capital should be deployed elsewhere. Dividend, Unless, or, yeah. but what if what if deploying the capital elsewhere would be even worse? It's funny you say like that. I, I, I wrote a note on that because the biggest criticism that you, the big the el, one thing you could do elsewhere would be do dumb deals. Exactly. And so we actually studied that in a note maybe ten months ago of, of sort of smart. Along only PM asked me that, so I'll, I'll say that was a smart question. Not that your previous ones back weren't to, smart, but that was, to, that, was one better, that was one of your better moments. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, and uh, it, and the the answer is. Um, it helped a little of it versus dumb deals, but not that much. That's surprising. Yeah. As I say, back to Disney, like people were taking issue with Bob Iger paying himself $31 million. I'm like, yeah, but he also could have done it, taken that money and bought back stock at 180. So this is what I want to, this is what I'm talking about. So when I, when I, when I covered, what you're saying. no, I, I, this is important. I, I, I was a semiconductor analyst, uh, you know, uh, in 2002 to 2006. Right. And I covered large cap chip makers. Intel was my most important stock. And in those days, it's whatever, seventh or eighth biggest now, but it was the biggest then. And they bought back a billion dollars of stock every quarter. So I talked to their CFO at the time. I was a young analyst. And uh, I said, why do you buy back a billion dollars every every quarter? Um, you're cyclical, and I think you know stuff about the business, and I would assume you could do better. And he said to me something. I didn't – I was so naive I didn't understand. He said um, – this is a quote. Uh, he said, Adam, if I back back $500 million this quarter, you're going to be an asshole to me on the conference call. What did he mean by that? I'm going to say, well, do you think the stock's expensive? Is that why I do it? Like, so he why was aren't worried. you doing a billion? So I went to my boss and I yeah, said, yeah. I don't get it. Like, I thought they did what actually made sense. Like, I don't know. I was 34 years old. Like, who cares what I think? I'm like, yeah. I, I, like do what actually makes sense. And yeah. I realized, like, it's, it's so much of it is a signal. To them. They're selling a story. And it shouldn't be. If you ask Warren Buffett, does he want a signal or does he want to buy it right? He says, I want them to buy it right. But so many of these management teams, they're they're like concerned about, you know, the two-day market reaction and not deploying the capital correctly. The second thing is when con- conditions are good and they feel prize momentum, they feel good, they buy it back. And when it's not, they don't. So like they're almost like slightly negative indicators. We then do some work, and a lot of boards and companies are interested now on accelerated share of purchases where you do big block through a bank. At a, that seems to be more effective. Um, and so we'll see if Hang that's – Hang on. Can you explain? That's a type of a buyback? Yeah, it's – Accelerate, so, yeah. Yeah, so you do a big chunk at once. Rather than yeah. authorize it in January and then slowly buy opportunistically. The right. journal just, you just an article do it on in this. one shot. Who yeah. was- who was doing that? I can't remember. But you're so right. These buybacks are pro-cyclical when in reality it should be the opposite. But they're human. They're, these decisions are made by human beings. There's some more information, and we study this, in 
open market purchases by CEOs or CFOs, because then they're doing it in the open market, and that's more of a and then and open not market a, and sales off, and off schedule, right? Well, they're restricted on when they right. can do it. You know, locked up like crazy, they can only do it during the the appropriate most period. Most tech executives, though, are getting too many stock options to be doing an open market purchase. The there most, would be like, no need to. I'm, but that's the signal. I think yeah. if you could study the variable compensation, that would tell you a ton. We do a lot of like natural language processing where we're ingesting stuff from transcripts systematically. It's very hard to get a variable comp because what I mean by variable comp for everyone listening is not what your salary and bonus is, but like if you hit a 15% revenue growth per year target, you get another More 10 shares. million restricted stock yeah. or 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 I'll, I'll get sneaky here for the accounting nerds that are listening. Like, do you get the dividend on the unvested portion of your deferred? Mm. Do you pay capital gains or do you pay income tax? Like, because remember, if I'm if I'm long ten million bucks of stock with a four million four percent dividend, and I get four hundred k per year on the unvested stock that's going to vest two three four years from now, I love myself the dividend, right? I hate yes. options. I don't want it to look that way. So it, there's a lot of like tie goes to the runner or whatever, you know, like, I, nobody purposely damages their own net worth. So I think the decision-making, you know, especially, oh, especially stocks 300 and below, most of the top 100 have real boards and real finish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, as you get into the squishier 6 billion market cap zone, there's some weird stuff or like back next, back next to your financial uh, guy on your board <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But, but when you said <laughs> you the know? opposite yeah. is not true, I would assume that yeah. companies that are diluting their shareholders ex-Tesla is a pretty shitty place to be. Yeah, the growth company showed that that two and a half percent or more dilution is bad. Those were net dilution numbers. So I could see the merits of a company, you know, paying their employees who are R and D based two three percent dilution, just buying it back to zero. I could see that. I'm talking the net, but yeah, net. Those are all net that I was yeah. showing. But I I don't think like buying back two and a half percent versus zero has been very helpful in a lot of cases. And I think dividend, consistent dividend growth, you know, once companies do it two, three, four years in a row and their payout ratio doesn't get above kind of 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, meaning like there's no risk they're going to cut it anytime soon. Those companies tend to accrue. You and time. Ben did this on uh, yeah. Animal Spirits, how stocks went from be being wealth creation to wealth uh, generation. Or what were you trying to say? Just the capital efficiency of these companies to what we were talking about earlier about earnings in 2020 versus 2025. It's incredible how ruthless and efficient and just amazing these companies are at generating returns for shareholders. Obviously, they can't control the macro, not every year. Yeah. But if you're talking about sh generating returns for shareholders as earnings per share, look, if they've you were, never been better. If you're going to be the CEO of a big company for 10 years, what do you want said about when you're done? Number one, you are a good steward of capital. You did you avoided stupid deals. Maybe you did one or two good ones. You bought back the stock well. You grew the dividend. You rewarded your shareholders, right? Like that's number one. Two, maybe you got a relatively higher multiple on PE, either sales or whatever versus your peers or an No one's going to remember you for that. But 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 it's correlated to the stock. It matters. But, it, it, yeah, but, yeah. You, know, you know, you avoided, you know, taking on unnecessary risk. But at the end, it's where you could store of capital. Right? So that's why all the, the advisory stuff is around management decision making. And I just could tell you that Generally, the system is bad at buybacks relative to the other other um, other uh, deployments. You've been doing this a long time. You're a student of market history. Have you ever seen a period of time where companies were so good at generating more and more free cash flow? I mean, the free cash flow yield is is not a good way to look at it because you know the, the price might be asymmetrically rewarding that, but. Um, I think if Fine, I, maybe not as a, maybe not relative to the market, yeah, cap, but just yeah. earnings per share, just, just the way that they create value and turn these battleships around. You know, it's funny. 
Um, I have some data on the S&P that goes back to 1928. So it's whatever, 95, 96 years of data. And the long-term S&P return is 11.7% per annum. It's been 13% of change since 2012. It's been 11.8 or 9 since 1972. So like the consistency at which companies can deliver productivity and, you know, co- drive out costs. You're sitting here now and you're not even in the batter's box yet on AI, right? Like everyone uses it. Yeah, we don't even know the impact like, of that. I, I, I know that um, the ability to look for low net income or low revenue per employees at huge companies, the ability to, um, you know, think about it. If you, if you can take a business that has 50% interaction required down to 10%, you can fire 80% of the people who do human interaction. Like you just start doing the math in your head about, well, why do I ever call an airline? Well, because I want to fly, uh, my wife use miles and I want to pay for my business and I want to sit next to her. And I wanna, blah, blah, yeah. Otherwise I would never call. Right. So if, if, if we get to the point in five years from now where I, I, I search for uh, London and all of a sudden it says, last time you did this, you, I, it goes to seat guru. It knows I don't want oh, to be in the men's to. room. I know, but you know it says, that's right, where we're headed. It says, yeah, it's absolutely. not happening now, it's, but it's five, six separate years credit cards. You're flying right. under business. Boom, boom. Wife last time you personal. stayed at the Bonvoy yeah, property yeah. here, well, does that sooner, work? It's prices. Sooner than five years. It, 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 it depends on the business and the application. I think certain the big financial industries will take longer because you have to run things in parallel. And so, But the point is there's a lot of – so the way I try to think about it systematically is like where is there a low net, low, low net income or low revenue per employee and where could that be improved? It might be screwed because it's a call center. It's a dying business or it might be something that efficiencies. Where am I paying a high margin? Who's earning a high margin off me? If I'm Jamie Dimon, I'm looking at like which software company and which you know uh, service company is extracting a lot from me and can I, rep- can I replace them? Can I predict the – my employees, this wall garden of behavior and my, and my clients, can I predict their behavior and just obviate the need so to pay I think all these that people? The real That's going to be a huge productivity boom for the next decade. So I, I, I think we're early days in productivity. I think the real yeah. savings is going to be one step beyond the AI uh, autonomy. And just, just like anything you can think of where uh, a person doesn't need to do that work. And BMW in uh, Spartanburg, mm-hmm. South Carolina, yeah. they're going to be the first uh, of the automakers to have humanoid robots in that facility. Right. It's their only facility in the United States. Right. They have a robot that that it's coming from a, another company, mm-hmm. and it's a lease. It's robots as a service. They're not right. even buying it. But this is <laughs> it's, version is 01. That a, is that a REIT? Yes. It could be It could be a REIT. You could probably read it. You could probably read it. years, it'll be a REIT. Yeah. <laughs> but they're going to have a humanoid robot, and they right. say, well, what is the robot going to do? It's going to work with steel. It's going to pull things out of boxes. It's going to carry heavy objects. We still have human beings doing those jobs Listen, after all this time, I, and there's no need for the, it. The semiconductor industry is incredible. Like when I started, you know, doing it years ago, I put a bunny suit on. I went into a huge wafer fabrication facility. There were, you know, dudes wearing white you suits. You were the white. Uh, yeah, white bunny suit, and they're carrying the wafers around. And what do people do? They get their hair on it. They drop them. The yield was not great. Now you look at these companies and their efficiency, like no human being goes in there. It's locked in a thing. It's machine. It goes in there. Like there's just massive efficiencies that can be happening in every industry all over the place. And no. Obviously the financial industry is included in that, but I would say healthcare is probably Josh, the Josh, remember in the Aliens when Ripley goes into that giant like me, thing at the end where yes. she kills the queen? I've never, yes. seen, I've never seen it. What? Yeah. Never seen aliens. Wait, what? I'm not a science yeah. fiction okay. guy. Fiction, but you know, yeah. like that should, I don't know if that's coming, but stuff like that for like uh, factories and warehouses. Yeah. Well, look, uh, so, so, productivity the, is, is, is betting against that. I don't think makes sense. And I think the answer is the companies that have done pretty good on earnings. Yeah, but they can continue to. And I, I, I think that's, you know, um, 
why you you end up with an S. But that's that does the well. case from from my perspective. Dow one hundred thousand comes about because everybody just wants to own the robots and enjoy their lives and not do. Why is there why is there a human being in a Jersey Mike's making sandwiches? Why isn't that a vending machine? Why uh, is is there a human being who cleans airport bathrooms? Don't tell me. Oh, isn't it great? We're providing employment. Nobody should have that job. Nobody. They should have a different job. No, this. So is, that's. But this has been going on for years and years. I remember Milton Friedman uh, with the whole spoon, spoon, spoons versus shovels. You know, I didn't realize the job program. You know, let's get what's the spoons. I, I I I think that's where we're headed. But I think when you look at it systematically. Um, can the big companies who can afford the upfront spend to benefit predict their customer and employee behavior? Those are the ones that are going to do it first. And, it, and I think you're going to unroll it, you know, like, like you said, now for the next five or 10 so years. So I guess the question is, have these giant companies in particular already gotten the benefit of the doubt? How much of this is priced in or are we just getting started? I think it's closer. I'd say it's the latter. I think it's closer. We're just getting started or it hasn't even started Me yet. Me too. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's some people doing, like like I bought an NVIDIA GPU out on, on on-prem NAQIX for my business because we're super efficient using it. Um, I guess, I guess every two or three years I have to get a new one, right? Like, I, I mean, like, it, but like the efficiencies are massive. Like I'll give you a silly example. Just so, so let's say 10 years ago, I said, hey, Josh, um, I want I want you to look at every consumer and retail company and tell me if then there's any stealing, if they're talking about stealing in their transcripts. Right. You would go open, control F, type in stealing, shrink, organized retail crime, security. You type in those words. Then you'd go to Excel and you'd say, on this date, I day. typed it in. Okay. It's a whole day. I can do that on quarter now. Okay. You know about quarter. Go ahead. Uh, what I do is I come up with what I think are the terms that are relevant. I search every earnings call, every webcast presentation, Back to 2011 for 130 retailers. I merge it into my database. I look at forecasted profitability, multiples, returns, estimates. I can create a long short basket in two hours. Mm-hmm. That yeah. would have taken you like a month to do 10 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Okay. So it's nothing I described as AI. It's and you're just not, and by the it's way, just extraction and efficiency. And you're not NASA. Like no. you're able to do that. I paid 10 grand for the GPU. I paid 450 months for the QIX and, and I years, know what to look for. Adam, in three years, it'll take you an hour. It's efficiency. My point is like I'm I'm a more literate than average person trying to do this. And I think it'll just continue to track down to other businesses over time. So I don't know if it's like eventually like the pizza guy at the corner has got technology that's productive too, but I already see it a little bit. No, it's I, where, I already, where, it I already really, see it. where it really impacts earnings is when people are utilizing AI workflows and don't know it because right. the skin over that is an app that they use every day. And that's already here. It's already happening. That's already happening. I see it in a lot of my my life. I don't know if you yes. see it, but like I travel once or twice a year to the same cities a lot, and I land, and the way says, "Do you want to go to the place that yes. was the hotel you're, you know, Marriott Kansas City? I've been there in a year. It's just like it's already like it's it's in don't dialing get directions in my life. to Kansas City from him. Why? Uh, <laughs> he doesn't he he doesn't know which state he's in when he's in Kansas. City. I thought City. I was there last week. I thought I was in Kansas. I'm still shook. I've not recovered mentally. Yeah. I mean, in Missouri. Yeah. I, um, I've spent a decent, <laughs> yeah. I've been on, I, I don't, I, I should estimate the actual number, but I'll just say I've been on 10,000 airplanes in my life. Not to and brag. It, it's, it's not, it's not a good thing. And, uh, it's a huge <laughs> number. And I've been in two tornado warnings uh, at airports in my life and both were oh, in shit. Kansas city. Yeah. Uh, and, um, it, 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 it was, I would say the worst airport in America and they really improved it a, a year or two ago. And so I, it's gone from a bottom decile to top decile airport. So it's been a, it's been a share gainer in the airport portfolio, but you don't want to be underneath the tarmac at MCI. I, I don't be underneath any tarmac. Hey, I want to do. I want to do one last thing before we go to favorites. I'm and short. We, and we I'm short you. tornado warnings. Totally. Yeah. You have uh, you have some stock ideas. 
Yeah, we try to generate sector industry and stock ideas. All right. So this first one Uh is long slash buy growth stock ideas. And you say the following growth stocks are low growth beta, Hmm. high quality, low style score, meaning less growth, Hmm. and have relatively lower revenue growth. Why is that good? Because – so do you want the 30-second answer or the three-minute one? Your choice. You, I don't know. Well, I get, you, which I get most professorial. Effective? I tend to go long. All right. right. It turns out that when you buy growth stocks, the quartile that works the best, the only one that works over time is the highest quality quartile. you got to buy high-quality Not fastest growth. What does quality mean? For us, it's a systematic tag. It's a function of level and um, stability. <laughs> level, level and stability of re- return on equity and net income, turnover of the share base, distance from default, like quality metrics for the business. And so we tag them high, mid, low quality and junk every month, and we track that as a factor. And and so the highest quality one works. Within the highest quality, what works best are the ones that um, are uh, lower uh, beta, meaning they don't uh, – like ARC is inferior to sort of slower growing but steadier growth businesses. Yes. Got it. It might not be the best for a two-week trade. Sure. If you tell me the financial conditions are going to eat, sure, I'll buy ARC triple long ETF or whatever some of your listeners like to do. But I think if you go – and you're investing like for a six or 12 month turnover or something like that, over time, the highest quality quadrant with lower um, uh, forecasted growth and lower beta works. Why? Because a lot of the fast growing, fast expected ones have higher starting valuations and then they blow up. They're paying for those. Sorry to cut you off, but what does growth mean to you? Because I'm looking at Walmart and I don't think of Walmart as a growth stock. So what makes you classify it as such? Low growth. So, so we also have a system. It's low no, growth. We also have a systematic tag for growth. It is in the growth universe and it's one of the lower growing ones in the growth universe. It's a systematic tag. There's four signals that dominate it. Um, fast, uh, if you have lots of debt, a high dividend, you're cheap on price to book, and you don't grow your value. And if you have sort of faster forecasted five-year growth, uh, don't have uh, a high dividend, don't have debt, and uh, you're expensive on book, you're growth. So like Walmart must be in some cocktail of those four metrics just sneaking into the Well, these the are, are these in any particular order? I think it's just by market, market cap. cap. So yeah. Visa, United Health, Walmart, uh, Marshall McLennan, which is insurance, Regeneron. So we have a basket of these. Yeah. And what it shows um, is that if you held this basket and you re- recalibrate, I think, quarterly, it will massively outperform. Some of the names will change and it's almost but it's the, the, the important point is it's the basket, not the individual names. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we own the whole – we buy the basket of like 30 names. You so why don't you make this an ETF? We have a lot of baskets that our clients trade. Um Okay. You know, the ETF, my understanding, and you're more an expert on this, is that there's a bit of a um, hit rate issue. So if you start an ETF that doesn't work, oh, it, totally. it could be like so a what? Net, it can be so, a th- so, so it doesn't work. So start 10. Want to look. Well, if you want to fund all of them, I'll give you some of the <laughs> not, that, not that much money. We'll talk offline. Uh, let's do this one other one. I'll call it J-O-S-H. <laughs> These are your value stock ideas. Uh, and again, it's a basket. Below we show long ideas, non-financial Mega slash large cap value in the top half of quality with high return on invested capital right. and declining net debt. That's the those are that's attributes the that sauce. work within value. So what we then okay. offer is like a portfolio of the combination of high quality growth and value with the appropriate weights, and then we think that over time can beat the S and P. So it's you know some guys are growth guys; they just want the growth names. Some are value; they just want the value names, and then some are core S and P. These are your value names: yeah. Exxon, McDonald's, Altria. It's just a screen Colgate that yeah. will outperform value the value index over time. Okay. What's Pacar? Pacar? Did I spell that? What is that? Yeah. It's capital good stock. Tr- trucking. Yeah. <laughs> trucking. Yeah. Uh, do you have fun uh, on the show today? Yeah, always. I, yeah. I, 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 I didn't feel like it was uh, uh, time to be back. 
Well, this was the warm. This was wow. the warm up, and now I feel that you're ready. We're going to turn on all the recording equipment. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. Uh, uh, I want to do favorites with you, Adam. Okay. Uh, gonna, actually, I'm shocked that it's an hour and a half. Yeah, I, I didn't. Time know. flies. Time flies yeah, when you guys, you're yeah, in the fun. very capable hands of the compound. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, I, I have a few, so I'm going to go first. Yeah. I really want to just make sure all of our listeners get into this season of Fargo, which just ended. It ended this week. Did you watch the finale yet? Tonight. Okay, let me explain what happens in the finale. <laughs> no? You're, what did you think of the season? Are you in? I watched it. What, yeah, did okay. you, what did you guys think of the season? It was good. I thought it was my second favorite of all the seasons of Fargo. And this is the fifth? Is it the fifth? I think. Okay. This is my second. This is my number two after season two, I would say. Not, not giving anything away, but what did you think about the ending? I absolutely loved it. Why? Do you think people didn't like it? I didn't. I didn't read anything on it on purpose. I don't, it was very Cohen Brothers to me. So it was I mean, extraordinarily yeah. it feels Cohen Brothers. So Coheny. I love it. Yeah, I love the feel. All right. If you're not watching Fargo, for the love of God, it's eight episodes. Would you please just watch it? It's ten. Okay. Uh, it's ten. True Detective is back. We saw the first one on Sunday night. What'd you think? I have not watched it yet. Okay. Anyone else? No? Amazing. Tomorrow. You're a true Detective guy. I don't really watch any TV. Okay, if you were to watch one show, I haven't watched any of the shows you've mentioned. If you, I only, I only mentioned yeah, two. But yeah. if you were to watch one, True Detective, I feel like you would, you would. I watch appreciate li- it. I watch live sports. That's about it. Okay, yeah. uh, big year for uh, Michigan. I'm on. Yeah, I'm a Michigan guy. I know, it was a very big, very big stretch. Were you in the blue and uh, the the blue and maze? I did the correct thing this year. Uh, two years ago, I went to the Georgia game in the Orange Bowl. We got blown out. Uh-huh. Last year, I arrogantly pinned an L.A. trip before the TCU game, and then yeah. we lost. So I decided not to uh, jinx the there team, stay home. And, if, and that's why and they won. Exactly. Are you a Lions fan, too? I'm not. I'm from Boston, but I went to Michigan. So got it. Patriots, got Celtics, Red Sox, Bruins, uh, which has been a nice Yeah, not bad. Nice, uh, life. You know, it's nice, you to see the, it's nice to see the underdogs from University of Michigan finally get one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, the leaders It's nice the best, to see baby. one thing in life go well for, yeah. for those people. Yeah. It's... Um, it's, it's my wife went to University of Michigan. Oh, I can't nice. stand all her friends. They wear the everywhere they go. That's it's too much Michigan. pride. It's too way much. too much pride. You Take know, it, relax. You know, I think I think when you're <laughs> college was forty years I ago. I think when you're top <laughs> top ten in 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 everything, it it, it it's helpful. I, I I had a great time there. I mean, I think if you meet someone who says they went there didn't like it, you should, it probably says more about them yeah, yeah, than, than the university. Oh yeah. no, it's yeah. great, uh, no question, great it's, school. It's the, hard to get. It's hard I, as someone who has kids that are college age. It's not as easy to get in as when I applied. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> That that's for it's, sure. It's an amazing school. We yeah. uh, we toured it for we toured it for my daughter. Right. She didn't she didn't end up going there. She's not going to end up going there. But it's an incredible school. Yeah. It, the problem is what you turn into after. I think <laughs> is the is the main issue. I hear you. I mean, as a Boston guy and as a Michigan guy, we're in the worst uh, quadrant for you know. Oh my God! Just, it's your yeah, you're, you're yeah, at risk. You have bad. two risk factors on you. Yeah, they're the worst. They're the worst. But you know, I raised my kids in New York City successfully to root for the Boston sports teams. Um, and so that was huge. In terms of college, it's been a disaster. They, they go to schools that, uh, you know, are opponents of Michigan. So I've, I've had to swallow my, my pride. Well, the good, news, the, yeah. good, the good news is it's fun. It's awesome. It's fun. You know, my, it's a fun rivalry. One of my best moments of my life was my sophomore year at Michigan when we won the national championship in basketball. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, did you see they I, just re- re- uh, reunited? Yeah. Uh, those did. guys, I that's did. pretty cool. Yeah, right? I, did. I did. I saw all five together. I think it's because the team was seven and nine and needed a little bit of a Fine. little bit of a boost. But they won that game, so you know, yeah. All right. Well, listen. I know you're not a TV guy. True Detective is back. Okay. What this is that? This is also the fourth season. It's it's an anthology series, which means that every season 
has no relation to a prior season. Okay. It's a new story. It's new actors. Uh, two it, and three were not good, so. Uh, right. But yeah. this one, I think they figured out why those two so didn't go well. What, what happened to me is it. during COVID, like everyone, I, I watched a couple of series, uh, Heist, the one where they were, you know, stealing some money. And and it just, they all turned to soap operas. And, and, and then at the end, I thought, I learned nothing. I'm tired. And I'm uh, tired. I don't, I, you know, because <laughs> you stay up till two in the morning watching stuff when you should have shut it off. And I just felt like empty inside. And mm. so I'm, I, like, I'm looking for that feeling. I want to feel empty. And so I just, I'm like, what am I doing with my life? And so I've tried to, you know, focus on, you know, learning stuff, you know, podcast reading. And I like live sports and I like, Going to live sports with my kids and my wife and that kind of stuff. Th- what do you think for the Super Bowl this year? You have a strong take on any of the um, teams? The Niners look pretty good. I mean, all year, all year they have. Yeah, I guess. I guess the you know I root against the Ravens just because as a Patriots fan they've been yeah kind of frisking in our face a few times. They're fun to watch though. Yeah. So I guess even though I even though I'm not from the Make the call. Michigan, I, I would love it if the Lions would win. I think that would be a nice story. Niners I think that Bills. would be fun. Yeah. I want to see Eminem, I want to see Eminem like yeah. going crazy more in the, the stands. Everyone, more Eminem everyone who is not from uh, Tampa or one of the other competing teams is rooting for Detroit. How yeah. could you not? Yeah. I mean, it's just a, you know kind of a team that's had – I like that guy the other day who was like 89 and he'd been a season ticket holder yeah, for yeah, 66 yeah. years. And he saw his first playoff it's win. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I, can, unbelievable. I, I can help you a fan of that. Right. Yeah. Uh, Michael, you got anything for us? I Any best of or what do we got? Nothing. I loved – I really loved uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. You did? I did. I really did. I And I think there's two reasons for that. One, I my expectations were thankfully set very low because people did not generally love it. Right. And I watched it in like four sittings. I think that had I gone opening weekend to the Ooh, okay, so if I went opening theater, opening weekend I'm to the theater, say, I probably would have I'm been gonna disappointed. I'm going to say the it's so worst long. thing I've said to you so far. Which Please, is I was encumbered by having read the book first. Me too, and I so read it. it made it worse. Yeah, okay. because it, I agree with that yeah, take. Yeah, it's just the problem was it wasn't. You know, I think for all of us of our era, we're like Scorsese, DiCaprio, De Niro. I'm in. Like yeah. I don't even need any follow up yeah. questions. And so with that sort of setup, even with oh you know, I heard it was long or whatever, it still was disappointing. So I thought the best uh, actor in uh, in the whole the thing wife, was the woman. She was yeah, incredible. She was great. Lily Gladstone. Yeah, she was great. So the book the book was amazing and different and focused a lot more on the FBI. I know. There was very little FBI in the, I, fi- in, I know. The, in the film. I agree. Um, but I just again having low expectations. I thought De Niro was interesting, cooking. Interesting take. I. I'm I'm, not, I'm I'm surprised, yeah. but I really yeah. enjoyed it. The yeah. problem is when you get to that level of renown and success as a director in Hollywood, and you have I'm just happy you picked one thing I've seen. There we go. <laughs> Listen, it's not good, fellas. No, no, you have a you have a studio like Apple right. that's really like unlimited capital and wants prestige. Then you get Marty, and it's like Marty, what's your passion project? You want to do this? Right. Here's as much money so as you need. I've actually seen um, two movies. The other one um, I thought was awful. Uh, it was, and again, it was had me at hello, Paul Giamatti, you're at uh, New, New England School. That was bad. Sorry, Ben Carlson was into that movie, right? Yeah, it's a film. Yeah, sorry, a, I didn't a, see no, that No, I'm one. definitely on your team. It definitely sucked. I mean, I, 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 I don't, this no will be, I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but my wife I and I like left the films. movie and we were like, I think we could have written it better. You don't like, like where, Alexander what are the, what are the writers, oh, oh, like oh, what oh, happened? Like, what, like give me the script, I'll edit it and I'll make this movie at least somewhat entertaining. And like, I like Paul Giamatti. Who doesn't? The guy, I mean, I mean, right? I but, think the filmmaker is boring. Yeah. Alexander Payne. 
Yeah, I, I was thinking like I wished I was flying to yeah, Singapore and I it just sideways. killed three hours flying there, and then I wasn't as mad about it. There are four funny scenes in Sideways, and Paul Giamatti <laughs> is the reason for three of them. No, who's the other dude? I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, Thomas Hayden Church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. It's just not great. Yeah, it's okay. Not, yeah, uh, not his knowledge. You've yeah. Elite. Uh, anyway, ki uh, kill Killers is problematic because they make Leo DiCaprio plays the dumbest person in the movie. Yes, it's too much time spent with an idiot. The Brendan Fraser character is great. Uh, Jesse Plemons' character is great. These guys show up in the last 10 minutes of the movie. It's like, wait, this should have been the movie. I just, I love Bobby, De Niro, and DiCaprio going back and forth. I just, again, low expectations. So yeah. uh, too, I was too, blessed with that. Too self-indulgent. Yeah. All right, we're yeah. going to wrap it here. Yeah. Adam Parker, can we tell people where they can learn more about yeah. Trivariate uh, and follow your stuff? So it's Trivariate, not Trivariate. I should I should have just called it like <laughs> T or something. I've had... Uh, uh, yeah, don't start pronouncing things European-like. Michael gets yeah. really triggered by that. So we learned it was tonight. supposed to mean three variables, Trivariate, which were supposed to be macro, quantum, fundamental, applied to equities. If I did it over, I would have simplified it because... Trace variables. Yeah, we've got, we've got, yeah, we've gotten, you know, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of, uh, uh, I, put, I was on the air with an unnamed CNBC reporter who I think triveriated me, so I, I, it caused me to <laughs> That's amazing. clench up a little bit. But it's just www.triveriatresearch.com. Uh, Adam yeah. Parker Analytics would have been good. You know, I, I, I don't think the uh, eponymous thing suits me. I, I, I don't like that too much. Fair. I think some people were into it. I don't, I don't need that. I like uh, something a little bit nerdier. We're getting played off. Yeah, you play, you playing us off? Doug has pulled the what cord. You, what do you got, a train? <laughs> <laughs> it's very subtle. Right. I was just bringing right. it in. No, you're right. Bring it up. Nice wrap. Good Fargo take. Adam, as you, as you could tell, we love having you here. Anytime. We could talk to you for hours. Yeah, we'll you're, do it again. you're one of the brightest, most personable people on Wall Street. Thanks, we appreciate man. all of your research, all of your insights. I hope that our audience will check out your uh, site, your service, and by, by all means, Let's not wait this long again before we have you back. Anytime. anytime. What are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> anytime. You said anytime. All right. We'll have you back I soon. I mean, I'll, I'll come back tomorrow. You watch what you watch. What you ask for. All right. Hey, shout out, Duncan. Welcome back. John, amazing job as always. Rob, Nicole, Sean, Daniel, the whole Compound Media team. You guys crushed it this It's really week. elite. This yeah. is what your, 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 your improvement is noteworthy. Thank you. Yeah. Wait, till you wait, till, wait till you see me in six months. Wait till you see me in a year. All, All right. right. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Leave a rating and review. We'll see you soon.